I don't like your attitude. It's a Friday edition of PFTOT, also available on the PFTPM podcast. And it's Peter King joining me today because even when we're not on TV, Chris Sims refuses to work more than four days per week. So thank you, Peter, for filling in for Chris Sims. It's great to see you. It's great to talk to you. You're there in New York City. Uh, actually, you're in Brooklyn now, I think, but still, you're in a spot where a lot of this yep. COVID-19 reality is uh, much more pressing and much more real than it is elsewhere in the country. So we're glad to see you're doing well. We hope you're staying safe, and we hope that more and more people are taking the situation seriously. Uh, yeah, Mike, uh, you know, and it is true. I'm kind of in the belly of the beast, and... Uh... You know, most people in New York, I had to go into Manhattan um, to do a little bit of volunteer work the other day. I guess I didn't have to. And and to donate blood. And it was an absolute total ghost town. That was Wednesday. Um, and they say, don't come within six feet of anybody. I didn't come within 16 feet of anybody. And so um, I think people in New York, most people are taking it seriously. Uh, I think... We've got to somehow, you know, Mike, what what would the authorities in China have done to that kid on the beach in Florida who said, hey, Corona, if I get it, I don't care. Uh, this is my time to party. Where do you think he would be? Would he ever be heard from again? <laughs> I mean, you know, and so uh, though I, I think somehow, some way we've got to get a handle on the people who, uh, the the sort of corona truthers uh, who don't care about it because they're going to put us all behind the eight ball for about five more months than we probably need to be. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. There's that segment of society, typically younger people who aren't taking it seriously, who are still listening to the grossly outdated messages that we got early on, like it's a flu and it's the hoax, and they're using that to justify whatever it is that they choose to do. And I think it's important that everyone use their platforms. And I've been trying to use mine all week, Peter, to get people, especially in that age group, wake up, grow up and do what needs to be done. And what needs to be done is nothing. We are all very good at doing nothing. Just get your ass home, sit on the couch, play Xbox or PS4, watch movies, don't go anywhere. Don't do anything. You're finally getting the license to do what you want to do, which is hang out <laughs> and do nothing, and they don't want to do that. Yeah, it's because they've been looking forward to going to Florida for so long, and the last thing we could do is to disappoint those those poor 20-year-olds uh, who want to drink all day and sit in the sun. Uh, anyway. Yeah, I mean, look, and I don't want to make it a generational thing, but damn it, it is. And I think it's important for those of us who are old enough and wise enough to realize that this is a problem, that we're taking it seriously. We need to use our platforms, our voices privately and publicly to get the younger people to understand they need to take this seriously. And the sooner they do, the sooner we can get through all of this together. All right, we're here to provide you a diversion and a distraction from the sad realities of normal life, which is anything but normal. So we're going to go through some of the issues that have bubbled up throughout the week in the National Football League, including something that just as of yesterday, the Rams had Todd Gurley under contract, were in discussions about a trade. Reportedly, the Falcons and the Dolphins were the most interested. The Rams cut Todd Gurley to avoid having another $10.5 million become fully guaranteed under his contract that he signed less than two years ago. And now, Peter, already he's agreed to terms with the Atlanta Falcons. Well, I'll just say this, Mike. I think one of the weirdest things in our society is, and I heard it last night, I don't know, I was a uh, we watched a little TV, but I, I also did a little bit of work otherwise. And so I was paying attention to to Twitter and to a couple of talk shows. And I was and all these people were saying, oh, my God. Like, and, and, and I'm it was like poor Todd Gurley. So I went to the trusty over the cap dot com site. Jason Fitzgerald does a great job of curating salaries using Mike Florio, Adam Schefter, Ian Rappaport, whoever else, you know, 
uh, and uses all their information and curates all the salaries and does a fantastic job. And I wanted to see one thing, career earnings. So that, you know, I want to find out, should I feel sorry for Todd Gurley? Mike, Todd Gurley, who I believe is 26 years old, has made $38 million. So I'm sorry, the violin shall not play in the Peter King residence for Todd Gurley. And I get it. Everybody said, well, geez, they're really, you know, the salaries are just screwing over the running backs and, and all that stuff. They're not screwing over the running backs. They're paying the running backs what they are worth in the NFL today. And if Todd Gurley didn't have, Mike, whatever he had, if he didn't have the arthritic knee or what, you know, look, I don't know what Todd Gurley has. And if I were the Falcons, I'd be really, really careful, quite honestly, before you actually docu-sign a contract or however they do those things now with Todd Gurley. Because I would want, how do you not have, this is my thought, how do you not have your own team physician, your own orthopedist, how is it possible that you actually sign him without doing a very thorough physical exam on Todd Gurley? That's my big question. Hasn't one of the biggest issues over the last two years in the NFL, almost two years, hasn't one of the biggest issues been, you know, what's wrong with Todd Gurley? You know, why have they have the Rams gone from hardly ever playing him and, and playing them in a limited way and running them some. I mean, I, I, he went from being the superstar running back of the NFL to now it's almost like he's David Johnson. And so I, I don't know, Mike. I, that's, a, that's a multifaceted answer. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, and let's unpack some of this because I think one of the reasons that this has been so weird and strange and vague the Rams have treated the condition of Todd Gurley's knee like it's some sort of a state secret. And I think one of the reasons why, Todd Gurley is extremely sensitive about any talk regarding his knee. He got mad about it last year when reporters would bring it up. Peter, I just wrote a few stories about it, and he blocked me on Twitter for crying out loud. I didn't even insult him. Let me earn the block, Todd. Let me say something nasty if you're going to block me for crying out loud. I didn't say anything. But he's been very sensitive about it. And here's the reality. You mentioned the career earnings. Look, he had three years in as the 10th overall pick in the draft in 2015, the reigning NFL Offensive Player of the Year. The Rams could have played it out like the Chargers did with Melvin Gordon. Finish the fourth year of your rookie contract. Play out the option year of your rookie deal and then become a free agent. The Rams paid this guy after three seasons. He made $34.5 million guaranteed over two years. That's $17.25 million a year for a running back. No running back makes that other than Todd Gurley. That is unbelievable. And then the way the contract was structured, on the verge of having another $10.5 million become fully guaranteed, the Rams cut the cord. That contract was negotiated to force the Rams to make a decision. So now Todd Gurley becomes a free agent, which every player wants. Make me a free agent every year so I can go out and get the highest possible payday. He's got $34.5 million that he made over two years. He's a free agent, able to sign with any team. He has a deal with the Falcons the next morning. He wins. It's a jackpot. It's a brilliant move by him, by his agents, and the Rams screwed this up because they just could have paid out every dollar under his rookie deal, five years, said, see you later, God bless, Godspeed, good luck, like Melvin Gordon is currently trying to do and finding a new deal that way. Todd Gurley won big time because he'd have been a free agent anyway. He'd have signed with the Falcons anyway, and he's got $34.5 million over the last two years to show for it. Do you know the money yet from the Falcons? I don't know it yet. And I'll tell you what, here's another thing that makes the deal great for the the uh, Todd Gurley and his agent, $31.95 million of the money he's made the last two years is not subject to offset of any kind. No offset. It's only $2.55 million. The first $2.55 million he makes from the Falcons will be subject to offset language. So, look, I think, I don't know, I was spitballing earlier today, Peter, I think $5, 6000000 million is fair for Todd Gurley at this point when you consider right. he will have a limited role. I wonder how much he accepts the fact 
that he's not a workhorse, that it needs to be a limited role, and he needs to be paid accordingly. He's got to get to that point where he accepts he's not the guy that he was when he signed that contract in 2018. Yeah, I mean, when you know when Tom Brady signed with the uh, with the Bucks, um, a friend of mine, uh, you know, another media guy wrote to me and he said, "I'll tell you who the who the Bucks should go get right now for very cheap, Dion Lewis, because Dion Lewis basically can be that guy out of the backfield that Tom Brady is going to need as his crutch, you know, the pass catching back, and probably get him for cheap." And that reminds me of the fact that I don't think you're signing Todd Gurley to be Derrick Henry. You, you Obviously, you shouldn't be. You're signing Todd Gurley to be a complementary piece and a co-running back with somebody else. So I think he'd be very fortunate, Mike, to get a six million, to, to, to clear this year $6 million or, or maybe, you know, if, if they give him some sort of bonus and a lower salary this year. They just need to be able to, in 2021, if things blow up and it goes badly, they need to let him go and not have, say, nine million bucks dead cap money. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And let me tell you, there's another reason why this physical that will be conducted by someone, somewhere, somehow, under these COVID-19 procedures, a neutral doctor who may have never conducted a physical examination of a professional athlete in his or her life. Yeah. If there is a failure of that examination, if that knee keeps Todd Gurley from passing the physical, Peter, the next move by Gurley on this broader chessboard is to go back to the Rams and say, hey, that $10.5 million that would have become fully guaranteed if I was on the roster today, it was injury guaranteed. I can't pass a physical. Right. You owe me another $10.5 million on top of the $34.5 million, and that may work out to $45 million all told for Todd Gurley for two years of football if he can't pass a physical and if he can't play. And, you know, if you're Todd Gurley, there's an argument to be made that maybe you just walk away with your $45 million plus what you made your first three years in the NFL and call it a career. So there's two things at play here, Mike, the more I think about Todd Gurley. Suppose that Todd Gurley is living in L.A., okay? To me, the best thing that he could do if he's living in L.A. is he goes and sees Dr. Neil Elitrosh, you know, who uh, did Tom Brady's knee surgery in 2008. Um, He did, um, shoot, who's the receiver with the Rams um, whose knee he did a year or so ago? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Cooper Cup. He did his surgery, and he's obviously very well trusted by NFL teams. If he's in L.A., that's who should examine his knee. That's number one. Number two, he went to Georgia. If I'm not mistaken, he lives in Georgia or has a home in Georgia or something. And so would not he be eligible, perhaps, to get one of the Falcons team orthopedists, not in the facility, but somewhere in Atlanta to do the exam of his knee. That, I, I mean, that is a little bit shaky. What if the guy, what if, what if Todd Gurley has an apartment in Atlanta? It, 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 wouldn't he then, couldn't the neutral doctor be somebody who uh, the Falcons at least, if he doesn't work for the Falcons, that he would be very familiar with? I think you're absolutely right. Now, the way they wrote up the rules on Monday, it can't be a physical performed at the team facility and the team doctors can't go to the player. It has to be a neutral local physician. But you're right. In that community in Atlanta, the Falcons doctors will know someone that they trust to do that physical and they can guide them on what they need to look at and what they need to do. And if there's an MRI or an X-ray or whatever, the Falcons doctors can also take a look at that before anything gets finalized. But that $10.5 million that the Rams would owe Todd Gurley that is injury guaranteed at the time he was terminated. You can't cut a guy if he's not healthy enough to pass a physical. So if he fails the physical, the argument becomes, and my guess is it would be resolved in a grievance procedure, that the Rams owe Todd Gurley another $10.5 million on top of what they've already paid him. So look, 
This was a win for Todd Gurley. Shannon Sharp and I got into a back and forth last night on Twitter that, hey, what happened to, you know, he signed a contract and honor the contract. The bottom line is the contract was constructed to front load a ton of money and put triggers in there to force the Rams to make early decisions. Gurley got free agency and $34.5 million for two years. He won big time, and the Rams lost big time, Peter. And you look at the Rams now. My God, what have they done with some of the contracts they've negotiated in recent years? Jared Goff got a check for $21 million yesterday. He has a cap number of $36 million. They're looking to trade Brandon Cooks, who they gave a contract to sight unseen when they gave up a first-round pick two years ago. These chickens have come home to roost in a big way for the Rams, and this team is going to be very different than the team that went to the Super Bowl less than two years ago. Here's the thing. What's amazing about Brandon Cooks, I mean, just think about this. Just imagine if he gets traded, you know, and I've heard a lot of things, you know, maybe Tampa. I mean, I look, Tampa's already got an embarrassment of riches at the receiver position, but but wherever, okay? Just imagine. Think of this, Mike. You're 26 years old. You played for the Saints, the Patriots, the Rams already. Imagine if you end up on a fourth team by the time you're age 26 and a fourth team in the last five years. I mean, it's really, his career has really been amazing. Think about it. And again, I, I you know, I don't know what's going to happen to him, but, you know, he's played for, he's played for Sean Payton and gotten passes from Drew Brees. Played for Bill Belichick, caught passes from Tom Brady. Played for Sean McVay, caught passes from Jared Goff. I mean, obviously he's not in the same league with those guys, but he has played for three premier franchises. And and imagine if he goes to another team that makes the playoffs this year. It's just, you talk about, that's going to be one of the strangest careers in recent NFL history if he gets traded, particularly if he gets traded to a good team. And it's amazing because he was a first-round pick of the Saints in 2013. The Saints got a first-round pick when they traded him to the Patriots, who got a first-round pick when they traded him to the Rams. I don't know what the Rams are looking for for Brandon Cooks, but that would be the equivalent of drawing four aces if you hit four first-round picks that have been invested in this guy at one time or another. Well, here's the one thing that the Rams could do, if you think about it, Mike. If I were the Rams, I wouldn't really be that concerned about compensation. Obviously, you want a one. You're probably not going to get a one. Uh, in part because the same thing that that uh, that a lot of teams thought when they were thinking about DeAndre Hopkins. Guy wants a new contract. Guy's going to be going to cost a very high pick to us. We can get a receiver in the second round this year, maybe even in the third round, who would make a third over over the life of his contract that DeAndre Hopkins would make when he walked in the door with a new contract. So let's let's just do that. So so think about it this way, Mike. If I'm the Rams and I get offered, and I don't even know who has it, and I, and I get offered the 38th or 44th pick in the draft for Brandon Cooks, I take it. Because then you have salary management over the next four years with a bright prospect player who in another year could have been the 16th pick in the draft. You know, at the combine this year, Mike, you heard it the exact same way I heard it, that this is possibly and probably the greatest year ever for wide receivers in the 85-year history of the NFL draft. And if that be the case, Mike, if DK Metcalf went 64th last year, and Terry McLaurin went 76th last year. I mean, imagine what you could get at 80. You know, theoretically, you could get a year one starter and that you could rely on. You could get a, a Michael Gallup plus. And so I kind of look at this, if I'm the Rams, I'm not that obsessed with what I'm going to get in return if mentally I'm thinking to myself, I would rather have right now the 50th pick in the draft right now than I would have than I than have Brandon Cooks because I get salary relief and I get a younger player and I get a player who maybe he's not going to be as good as Cooks but in this offense you can hide a lot of deficiencies
He's got an $8 million salary, a $4 million roster bonus this year. Next year, $12 million salary, 13 14 after that. He's signed for four more years. He's got that concussion issue as well that may cause some teams to think twice about trading for Brandon Cooks. And look, I don't think they're going to cut him if they can't trade him. But I think given this roster transition that the Rams are currently finding themselves in, it's a consideration as they reshape the team. They got to get a running back, though, Peter. Look, I don't think Jared Goff is the same quarterback without a weapon like Todd Gurley to open up the offense. Jared Goff doesn't have the mobility to extend plays. You give him a clean pocket, he's going to be fine. But you take away Todd Gurley. I mean, look, last year they didn't make the playoffs because Todd Gurley wasn't as effective as he'd been in the past. This could be a quick turnaround from a team that looked like it was on the front end of a dynasty to a team that's going to be scratching and clawing to be competitive in the best division in football. Well, yeah, and now because what you think about now compared to two years ago, it looked like the Arizona Cardinals were going to be on a five-year bender. You know, really. (laughs) Even after they announced Cliff Kingsbury, didn't we all think, oh, my God, Cliff Kingsbury had a losing record? You know, in college, got fired in the middle of his last year in college, and you're hiring him to help rebuild our franchise? Well, a year later, that looks different. A year later, Kyler Murray looks pretty good. And a year later, DeAndre Hopkins looks really good. So, you know, the Cardinals are not going to be a gimme for anybody in that division. That's number one. And number two, you know, Mike, I will never forget last year in May, I wrote a column And I ranked the teams 1 to 32. And I had the San Francisco 49ers 7th. And so of all the times in my life where I've written idiotic things that people said that I was a nincompoop with like a bunch (laughs) of asterisks and and dollar signs before that, I'm serious. That was a time where I could not believe that that I, I couldn't believe some of the things were being thrown my way. All's fair in love and and columnizing. But I'll never forget that. And I after I finished that, I was on a talk show in San Francisco and they said, Are you sure? And I said, Hey, look, I'm gonna pick two or three teams every year a little higher than people would think. But all I'm saying about the San Francisco 49ers is that they're gonna have a guy who's a top 10 or 12 quarterback. They're going to have the best defensive line in football, I think. And and that was even, and I don't even know what Bosa is yet. But you throw those two things into the equation. When you play a lot of close games anyway, and they're going to be good. Now, how did we know that even though Kittle had had a good 18, he had a transcendent 19, obviously. But all I'm saying is that every year, there's one of those teams that skyrockets. Last year was the 49ers. So... And and then obviously the Seahawks, John Schneider could be my executive of the year at any year. And they're going to wait out the storm. I still think it's 50-50 that they get uh they get Jadavian Clowney back. You know, for less money than he would want to, but by the time football starts whenever that is, he'll get over his bitterness and you know, if the Seahawks have him, he'll be a huge piece with Bruce Irvin, you know, trying to you know, do a reclamation project on his career. So all I'm saying is that you're right about the Rams. The Rams two years ago, the end of the Super Bowl two years ago, you think, man, these guys are going to be good for a long time. Hey, it's there's no guarantees in today's football. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And one of the things there's no guarantee about is that football is even going to start on time, given what's currently happening in the world Free agency was affected, but not as much as I thought it would be. The draft clearly affected. It's not going to happen in Las Vegas. It'll happen in a TV studio somewhere, and I think it'll have the biggest ratings it will ever have had because it's the only oasis of actual or semi-actual sports over the next couple of months. But, Peter, I think the offseason programs won't happen. The question is, will training camp open on time, and what impact will that have on the season? And will the season even happen on time? A lot of open questions, and I hope the NFL is planning for all possible scenarios. Mike, let's take them one at a time. You know, let's forget about the offseason program. I can't see it happening, or maybe it happens in a very, very abbreviated way, say for the first two weeks of June. I don't know, but I can't see any group team activities 
at the absolute earliest before June 1st. But again, that's me just spitballing, being obsessed with this thing over the last couple of weeks. So then you start to think about, okay, training camp, will that happen? I mean, probably now training camp happens without fans. Um, do you play the preseason games as normal? Um, and are you even going to have, I mean, after watching, you know, the spring breakers and after watching some other elements of our society, there's a huge wedding uh, the other night in a Brooklyn community that had like 500 people and the police had to break it up. And so there's obviously people are still getting used to the fact that you can't do group things anymore and how much of a factor and how long it lasts. Mike, I, I don't think there's any guarantee at all that this season starts on time. I, I just don't. I, and I'm not trying to be an alarmist. I'm just trying to say, you know, we'll see. And I think that you can't make any solid predictions about the timing of things to happen in the future in this country. And if you somebody would listen to that and say, oh, you're crazy. The football season is six months away. Look what happened in China. They got, they got rid of it. They aren't even having any more coronavirus cases. Mike, they dragged infected family members away from each other. And, you know, they kept them for 14 days without any contact with their families. Do we have the will in this country to do that? I don't think so. And so that's why, okay, in three months, it disappeared in, in China. Three months, uh, and I don't even know, disappeared is probably the wrong word. But in three months, they basically got a great handle on it in China. Do you seriously think in three months we'll have a great handle on this with what you've seen on the news the last few days? I don't. Yeah, and I have no problem with you being an alarmist, Peter. If there had been more alarmists several months ago, we wouldn't be in this mess right now where we're preparing for hospitals throughout the areas where the greatest concentration of infected individuals are residing are going to be overcome by the the ill and not be able to properly care for everyone because there were no alarmists. There were no people who were seeing and understanding and connecting the dots between what was happening in China and what was inevitably going to happen uh, here. And I, I, look, I've been thinking about all the things that could unfold. Peter, I don't know where the testing technology is going to be in September, but I could see a scenario where the NFL goes forward in empty stadiums with every player tested before every game. And if you're positive, you're yanked from the pool of players and you're put somewhere until you're free from the virus. If you're negative, you get to play in the game. And I can see the NFL moving heaven and earth to try to make that happen. And again, I don't know where the testing technology is going to be in September, but if we can get to the point where testing is automatic and easy uh, and available, I could see that being the scenario where the NFL sacrifices the revenue that would come through the ticket office, but still makes the TV money by putting the games on TV, which would be wildly successful and have the highest ratings ever if we're still in this weird existence where we're staying indoors all the time. The one thing that I was just thinking about, and it echoes most of what you said, but just think now about if you had a debate between the two presidential candidates uh, on television on a Wednesday night in September and let's say a Tuesday night in October. Before, let's say there's two debates. Well, I think we've all assumed under normal conditions that because TV ratings were down 8%, uh, NFL TV ratings were down 8% in 2016 because everybody went crazy over the presidential election in 2016. And we've all assumed that 2020 would be the same. But now you are absolutely right. Even with the gigantic ratings that a couple of debates would engender and all of the talk would engender about the presidential election, which I still think would happen regardless of, of you know, the, the state of this disease. If it happens, Mike, if, if it happens in that way, I still think the NFL will get absurd ratings and get higher ratings than they had last year. Because all those people who said, 
yeah, I'm going to go take a long bike ride on Sunday, or I'm going to go do this on Sunday, or I'm going to the mall, or I'm going to go, you know, go to the beach, you know, with my friends. I mean, if you're in California, I mean, that's just, I, I mean, again, we can't see the future, but the future looks pretty cloudy to me. And on a cloudy, rainy day, what do people do? They stay in and watch TV. And if the games are played in the NFL, I think they would stay in and watch that. And, you know, that also has to be considered within the context of the possibility that there are no games and the season is a wipeout. And I'm in the process of trying to get to the bottom of this. I've asked the league. I've asked the union. They haven't gotten back to me, which tells me I may be onto something here. What does the CBA say about the possibility of the NFL not playing its games this year? Do the players still get paid? And if they are required to be paid, even if the NFL doesn't play games, what does that do to some of the teams? Not all of them, but some of them. Do you have the liquidity to pay these guys if you're not getting your money? Do the networks still have to pay for games that aren't played? I mean, there's a lot of layers and levels to that as well. Remember back in 2011 when the lockout was looming, there were reports that the network still had to pay the league even if the games didn't get played. Is that part of it as well? That There's a rabbit hole here that could get very dark and very precarious for the NFL if they don't play games this season. Mike, let's, let's talk about one franchise in particular. Let's talk about the New York Giants. Okay, so the New York Giants, this is the 11th year of MetLife Stadium. And when they started the, uh, the stadium... They offered uh, two levels of people able to buy suites, okay? You could either buy them on a 10-year contract or you could buy it on a five-year contract. So in any case, you know, all of their suite, I, I, and I shouldn't say all, for, for all I know, maybe they've got some people who go year to year. I don't know. But, but the majority of their suite holders are up right now, okay? So... That is revenue that John Mayer, this is a family business, okay? So John Mayer and Steve Tisch, they rely on that revenue to run this franchise, okay? And I'm not saying anybody should be holding a, 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 a canned goods drive for the New York Giants. The only point I'm making is that in a normal year, the New York Giants right now would have money coming in. You saw this week that the Giants basically deferred their season ticket payments for the year uh, till some months down the road now. Okay, so you've got that, and you've got the fact that I'm sure that people who have to pay, and whatever the number is, $100,000 to renew their suite for this year, I mean, somebody have a have the ability right now to write a check for hundred grand in this environment, in this climate, after the last two weeks? Again, I'm sure a lot of people do, but will people actually do that? And the one last thing I would say, what franchise in the NFL has the worst record in the league over the last three years? The New York Giants are in a bad place for this whole thing to be happening right now. Yeah, that's a great point. And there are other teams that are owned by families, and that's all they do or primarily what they do, like the Steelers, for example. You don't have other money that's going to get you through this or that can fund a year of paying player salaries. Basically, loan yourself money from other operations. You're going to have to go out and get a loan. And hey, the good news is the interest rate's going to be fairly low. But the bad news is that money that gets lost when a football season goes away never comes back. And I guess the irony, and I never know when to use that word properly, but a week after we stop talking about a potential lockout in 2021, there may be an involuntary lockout in 2020 and a lot of issues that would arise if and when it happens. And those would all be immaterial to the bigger problem, because if they can't play football in September, Peter, that means this thing ended up being much more of a mess than we thought it was going in. Yeah, and and Mike, I mean, I we, you and I are sitting here a week ago basically trying to figure out are the players going to vote for this or the players not going to vote for it. And just think how close it was. Think of this. On the average NFL team, 33 players voted for, 30 voted against. That's how close this was. 
All I'm saying is, let's just say it had been reversed. How many players would be holding their heads in their hands right now saying, oh my God, what have we done? Not the fabulously wealthy ones, but most of the other ones. And imagine the 11,000 players who are getting their pensions uh, with this new contract are getting their pensions raised by 53%, you know, from 30 to $46,000 in the first year. I mean, you think those people might need that money right now? So I guess the point I'm making overall is I think it's probably a pretty good idea they pass that CBA, even though there's still a rock-solid contingent of players uh, who hate it. And you got to wonder how many owners after the fact are wishing they had voted it down so they could yank that offer off the table of and wait a year, year and a half to assess all the damage to their broader portfolio and then figure out how to make as much money as they can back from the players in the next CBA. That's why it was smart for the players to do the deal and take the deal. And I think it was that that uncertainty that popped up last Thursday, Friday, and into Saturday that pushed this over the top by 60 total votes. I think without the craziness that really was sparked when the NBA pulled the plug on its season. Without that, I think the CBA fails, and there would have been a lot of owners happy about it. Peter, you had the quote of the month in your column that every time the stock market goes down 1,000 points, there's another owner that wants his vote back. And I think a lot of owners would have been happy to see this deal go away forever and then start it all from scratch on the other side of this crisis. You know, Mike, the person who told me that uh, was very concerned because I, I obviously I wanted to use that. I wasn't going to use the name of that person, but uh, he thought it was inflammatory, incendiary. And I happened to talk to him this week and I said, see, you are absolutely right. Because how many owners right now, right now would vote for this deal? 15, maybe? I, I, I think the majority, I, well, I shouldn't say that, but I think there's a good chance they would not have gotten the votes if that was up for a vote today. Okay, so free agency happened this week as planned, although it was somewhat different than normal, especially because of the physicals constrained by the COVID-19 procedures. The draft will happen April 23 to 25, even if it is Roger Goodell sitting by his fireplace in slippers with a pipe and a newspaper reading off the names one at a time, and we'll still have the highest ratings we've ever seen for the draft. Peter, the schedule usually comes out in April. Should that continue or should there be a different timetable for announcing when and where the 256 regular season games will be played? Well, Mike, that's a very, very interesting question because what has happened for the last five years, I have had access to that room when they've made up the schedule. Um, the first, uh, I think the first four years I wrote about it. And then last year I did it as a podcast. So I did it as sort of a live podcast with Howard Katz and Mike North and the people on the, on the scheduling team inside the NFL. And it always has seemed to me, okay, you're a week, be they, they do this a week before the draft. And there is always this incredible, intense computer spitting out Mondo schedules. And, and it's all for a rush because they want to get this schedule out before the draft. And they don't want to get it out on Wednesday of draft week. They want to get it out the week before so people can breathe and accept that and, and sort of, you know, figure out what this schedule means. And then the next week, they, you know, they have obviously the draft. And I think there are some people in the league who've always said, look, we know that people need to make plans. Teams need to start scheduling. We get that. But man, it would be nice for the schedulers if we knew what team Tua Tagovailoa is playing for in 2020. In 2020. And, and some other people. Not only to give this a little bit of time to breathe in a year when right now, if you're those guys right now and you're sitting there and you are less than a month before the release date, you're maybe 23 days before the release date or 24 days, something like that. 
you have no idea who's playing quarterback for the New England Patriots. Uh, you have no idea what's going to happen to Cam Newton. You, you have no idea, for instance, what's going to happen probably on four or five. They got big decisions to be made on four or five marquee teams. You know you're putting the, the, the Chiefs on six times in, in, uh, uh, in prime time. You know that. But I do think that there is some situation right now and some sentiment inside the league where they might want to wait until they have a little bit more certainty, especially with, what, with everything else that's going on. And Mike, there's one other thing that a smart person like you would realize when considering this. One of the things that I kept thinking about when Tom Brady was choosing his team, it was very, very, it, it, it was a big deal in some circles inside the NFL. Honestly, I think the NFL would much rather have had Tom Brady choose an AFC team. Okay, because if you think about it, where are all the draws right now? Okay, the draws right now, with the exception of, say, the Chiefs and traditional draws, kind of like the Steelers. Okay, you know, there's not really a draw in the AFC South. You know, there's, there's, you know, obviously the Ravens and the Steelers you know, are a draw. But if the Patriots play Andy Dalton, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to look at the Patriots out of curiosity. But if they're one and three on October 1st, they don't want the Patriots in prime time. And, and so you look at the AFC, look at the AFC, where are the big attractions? So now you look at the NFC and oh my God, now they got Tom Brady. And all of a sudden, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to have to be a five-time primetime team they're going to have to be they're not going to be playing at one o'clock on Sundays anymore very much. So you try to look at all these things. And does that mean, for instance, that they do a lot more crossover games this year than they normally do? There's all these things that if I'm just looking at it, Mike, I say I will not be surprised if the NFL says we're going to release the, the schedule this year on on May 2nd and not April 18th. Well, and I also think, Peter, there's wisdom in creating more of an event from the schedule release. Instead of a week before the draft, if you bump it into May, middle of May, you make it another tent pole, right? Free agency this week, a great diversion and distraction for people who needed it. The draft will be the same thing. You push the schedule into May for the reasons you discussed, and from a business standpoint, there's a way to build it up there's a way to milk it. There's a way to maybe bleed it out over multiple days where they announce the schedule, maybe one team at a time or something like that, to give the rest of us something we can sink our teeth into and fully and properly digest and fill that void on the calendar. And it's not just selfishness by the NFL to try to own the moment. It's the idea that it gives people something that will keep them sane at a time when they're going to be expected to stay inside. So you could make the schedule release, I think, a three-night event a Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night in the middle of May just to give people something to look forward to and something they'll stay home and watch. And they need these are all look, they they need somebody in the NFL whose job is to do one thing and one thing only. Identify all the ways the world is going to potentially unfold over the next six months and come up with every possible strategy and possibility for filling those voids and handling those issues in a way that is good for the league and that is good for the people who rely on it. I'll tell you what, you're one insane human being. Has anybody Why? ever told you that? I mean, Why? <laughs> a three-day schedule release. I'm just, I, I mean, I'm just saying, hey, that is, look. I, and I'm not even, hey, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying that's what we've come to because you understand that anything, any little, any little nugget about the NFL is going to be a 40-minute show on ESPN. I mean, right. because and, and it's else. and it's something that makes and, you and it makes it. it makes people it gives you something to look forward to and it and it makes people willing to stay inside and comply with what they need to do. So they really need to think about it. I think you're onto something there for a variety of reasons. They should bump it into May. Who cares if if Ron Rivera 
doesn't know when he's going to face the Cowboys. Is it early? Is it late? How's that really affect the draft anyway? Gee, I better go out and get more corners because I faced uh, I faced the Cowboys week one. Uh, forget about it. Move it forward, and I agree with you on that completely. All right, we've talked about the draft. The Detroit Lions hold the third overall pick. There is an urgency in Detroit to win now in order to save jobs. Martha Firestone Ford made it clear in December she's sticking with the front office and coaching staff, but she expects more now. What are your thoughts on where the Lions currently are, where they need to go, and what they need to do with that pick that they hold in the top five? Mike, I, I guess I, I understand why you end up trading Darius Slay if you're, if you're the brain trust uh, you know, of, of this team and, and if you're Bob Quinn and, and Matt Patricia. I, I get it. I really do. Um, but at some point, you've got to start signing your big players to second contracts and holding on and building a team. Okay, because theoretically, and I forget, it might have been Todd McShay, it might have been Daniel Jeremiah, I forget who, but right after the combine, they said, hey, the uh, it looks like the Lions might lose Darius Slay, so they've got to take a CUDA. they got to sit here <clears throat> at number three and take far and away the best cornerback in this draft, um, the kid from Ohio State, Akuda, Jeff Akuda. So, and I thought to myself, They've already got on their team and their organization a really good shutdown corner. And somehow, someway, he's going to walk out the door. And you can't keep doing this. When you have the third pick in the draft, you should use it to really improve your team. Not to be like this. Not to... And and again, look, I guess Okuda is going to be better uh, than Darius Slay, even though I think there's no question Slay is a top 10, 12 corner in the NFL. But, but so I guess I look at it and I say, the Lions, to me, are just sitting there treading water. And, you know, to lose one corner and then go get another one, and I don't know what they're going to do with their pick. None of us do. But to me, I think that that bothers me about the Detroit Lions right now and the build of the Detroit Lions. Yeah, and look, one of the realities that's going on in Detroit now, and we saw it play out in the comments that Darius Slay made to Dave Burkett of the Detroit Free Press on his way out the door, the culture change is still a work in progress. And I know that when guys leave New England, they leave Bill Belichick, they believe they're going to do things their own way. What they don't realize is his ways are baked into who they are as coaches. It's all they've known. It's all they've seen. For Matt Patricia, it was 14, 15 years of watching Bill Belichick do what he does. One of the things Darius Slay complains about is that Patricia put up film of Slay getting abused by a receiver in a practice session, and Slay didn't like that. Well, Bill Belichick did that all the time to Tom Brady and everyone else. Prior regimes in Detroit apparently didn't call out the star players who had bad plays in practice. That is an example, a tangible example, of the clash of a team that's been crap, all due respect, for 60 years, and a guy who comes in with 14 years of experience working for the the gold standard, the platinum standard organization in the NFL. And it's taking time to make it mesh because the guys who were there under a much more lackadaisical regime— are finding out that they don't like it with Matt Patricia there doing things, whether he realizes it or not, the Patriot way. And I think with that third overall pick, Peter, what they need to be sure they do is find a guy who's going to be all in with the way they do things in New England. And ideally, I'm a firm believer, when you have multiple needs, trade down and get more lottery tickets and hope you get more winners and try to find more guys who will come in and convert that culture to what it is that Matt Patricia and Bob Quinn are trying to put in Detroit. Mike, do you remember, this is a long time ago, and you were still a stately Mike Florio Esquire lawyer in West Virginia at the time. But do you remember, um, I think it was Labor Day weekend, 2003, where the New England Patriots cut Lawyer Malloy. And they wanted him to take a pay cut. He said absolutely no way. Even though... You know, it had just been like a year previous that they had won a Super Bowl. Then they didn't make the playoffs the next year. And now they were entering 2003. So, you know, Belichick had been there three years. 
He had won one Super Bowl. He had a lousy year the first year, an okay year the third year, and they didn't and they won a Super Bowl in a shock in year two. So he wasn't Bill Belichick yet. Okay, and Lawyer Malloy just ripped the Patriots uh for how they did business. And so on that first day of the season, you know, after the Patriots lost 31 to nothing. Uh, there was a news re- to, in Buffalo. To Malloy. To Malloy. Team. Yeah. 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 And Tom Jackson of ESPN had said uh, on ESPN on that Sunday, the New England Patriots players hate their coach. Okay. And so I am getting into what you are saying right now. And we all know. So the Patriots won the Super Bowl that year. They won it the next year. And they would go on to win it three more times you know, in the last 15 years. So, so, but my point overall is, I believe that even though Belichick had won one Super Bowl at the time he was trying to make one of his defensive leaders take a pay cut, that he wasn't established to be able to do these kind of things yet and have the players just roll over. Whereas now, he kind of, they kind of have to just roll over. Whatever he decides, even if it's Tom Brady, in Bill We Trust, you know? And so to me, I kind of look at this, Mike, as a little bit of the same thing. Does Matt Patricia, if he shows film of of, uh, of Darius Slay getting beat, should he be doing that? I think so. And I, but, but if he's going to be doing that, then his team has to trust that this guy really knows what he's doing. And Tom Brady in 2007, when Randy Moss and Dante Stallworth walked into the team for the first time. And in the first team meeting of the offseason in 2007, there's Randy Moss and Dante Stallworth sitting together in the audience. And they've got a team meeting. There's whatever, 60, 70 people in there. And Bill Belichick puts on tape of Tom Brady making a crappy throw and throwing an interception late in the previous season. And... He said, and Belichick says, Brady, what the hell is this? I could get Johnny Foxborough to throw a better ball than this. And Randy Moss and Dante Stallworth looked at each other and said, Dorothy, we are not in Kansas anymore. He's saying that about the best quarterback in the NFL. And, but he could say that. It was the same reason why Bill Parcells could say that stuff about Phil Simms you know, in 1987 and 88 because they had won a Super Bowl and he had established himself in his program as being so great. So, and again, I don't think that Matt Patricia is doing a dumb thing by doing that, but it just goes to show you that the players don't have that kind of respect for Patricia, maybe that the players in New England have for Belichick. You know, it's funny, the thing you mentioned, the same dynamic played out four years later when Chad Johnson or Ocho Cinco, whichever surname he was going by at the time, was traded to the Patriots. First meeting, taped from the divisional round loss to the Jets the prior year after the lockout, right? All the crap they got to do to get a team ready with no offseason program. First team meeting, ripping Tom Brady for his performance against the Jets in a game they lost to Rex Ryan and company. And Chad was like, holy crap. If he's held to that standard, we're all held to that standard. And it works because they won. That's the challenge, Peter. If you're going to be that way, you got to get the players to buy in. The quickest way and the easiest way and the most effective way to get them buy in is to win. So that's why the clock's ticking on Matt Patricia. He's not going to be able to force this culture change on the Lions and get them to buy into it unless they win. Because if they're going to be mediocre... It may as well be the way it was before where it wasn't the coach is a butthole. And if the coach is going to be a butthole, you better win or people are going to check out. The media is going to be all over you. And the next thing you know, you're the latest Lions coach to get fired. I'd still take Tua. (laughs) I'd sit there right at number three. I'd take Tua. May the best man win the job. And next year you you get a one for Matthew Stafford. I mean, well, I know it'd kill you on the cap. I get it, but I don't know. I do not it. like it used to. Not like it used to. Doesn't kill you like it used to. I mean, the 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 Lions got yeah Calvin Johnson and Dominican Sue and Matthew Stafford all back in the days before the rookie wage scale. So it's not going to cost what it did, and there may be some wisdom in that to the extent that you can develop him the way you want him to be. And I think Tua will do whatever 
I mean, he survived with Nick Saban for crying out loud. He'll do whatever Matt Patricia tells him to do. He is preconditioned to deal with a Bill Belichick type of a head coach. So I, I agree with you. Uh, give him a year to sit behind Matthew Stafford, worry about Stafford next year, and get to a ready for 2021. All right. Speaking of the Patriot way and Bill Belichick, Tom Brady finds his way out of New England. And the big question for the Patriots is, who will the quarterback be? They've seen an exodus of plenty of free agents led by Brady. Jared Stidham is on the roster. Andy Dalton is still available. Cam Newton may be cut, and I think as soon as today, by the Carolina Panthers because they're not going to find a trade partner for him. What do you think Bill Belichick does to fill that quarterback position, top of the depth chart, week one of the 2020 season? Who do you think it's going to be? Well, now that Duke Tobin has told Ian Rappaport that we would work with Andy Dalton on possibly finding him a new place to play or whatever he did, and I'm paraphrasing that. If I'm wrong, it's something like that. Now that Duke Tobin has said that, what prevents every team in the NFL, now that there are not really a lot of teams left, Mike, if you think about it, what, the Chargers, obviously the Patriots, if you're the Patriots... Right now, if you're the Patriots, what prevents you from saying, cut him? And then signing Andy Dalton one year, seven million. Prove it contract. Has a, and and they, they agree with him at the end of this, we won't tag you. you know? So in other words, then you don't have to pay Andy Dalton 17. You could just pay him seven. Or And, and again, because my point is that Belichick's going to sit on the sidelines and just wait and see all these team, all these quarterbacks who, uh, you know, need a place to play, they got to sign somewhere. So they may have to use 2020 as a audition moment, even though they've been quality, good NFL starters in the case of Cam Newton and MVP. Why wouldn't the New England Patriots just say, on May 1st, we'll sign somebody. We'll just see who's out there because they're not all that concerned with who it is. In my opinion, is, and I've said this all along, I have zero inside information on this, zero. But in my opinion, all along, Andy Dalton has been a perfect Patriots guy. Egoless dude, uh, hard worker, will do anything that they say, never complains. He's got the Patriot ethos. And again, for some reason, hard for me to picture Cam Newton that way. You know, the Cam Newton I've seen in training camp with being the, the dancer and the yeller and the what. And again, that's fine. That's who he is. And a lot of teams, that's wonderful. Probably 25 teams, that's wonderful. Just can't imagine it happening in New England. But again, I don't know, Mike. I think they wait and they look at the pool of quarterbacks, whatever it is on April 29th, May 3rd, whatever it is, and they pick one. I, you know, I agree with you about Cam Newton. I, I'm fascinated by what Newton could do with the Patriots because he's 2-0 and all-time against the New England Patriots, and Bill Belichick has had a hell of a time with mobile quarterbacks, and I'd love to see them get one. And that brings me back to Taysom Hill. We haven't heard much about him this week other than there's a first-round tender that was applied to the restricted free agent, $4.6 million dollars. Anyone can make him an offer, and usually that kind of stuff happens after the first wave of free agency. But do you think the Patriots will take a look at maybe trying to snag Taysom Hill, give up their first-round pick, pay Taysom Hill, get him from the Saints, assuming they wouldn't match? I think they're going to match whatever offer is made. But if I'm Bill Belichick, I'm intrigued by what Taysom Hill could be if Josh McDaniels and Belichick craft an offense to get the most out of him. There's no question about it. I think it's an intriguing thing to do. It just depends how much cash you have in year one and how much cash you could put into that contract. The Saints are not in great cap shape. I think if somebody did sign Taysom Hill, that what uh, the Saints would have to do is redo about five contracts because they're determined that Taysom Hill gets a first shot in 2021 or whenever Tom Brady leaves. I'm Tom Brady, Drew Brees leaves. So I look at this right now. I think Taysom Hill would be great for them. But I'm a little concerned, honestly, that uh, that the Patriots would hand the reins to Taysom Hill and give him the kind of contract 
that they would have to give him without really knowing. This would be the ultimate leap of faith by Bill Belichick. Does anybody really know? You know, it's funny, Mike. I looked at his stats at Brigham Young. I don't know, one time this year I looked him up. And they were not very good. <laughs> you know, and I, again, you don't, it's hard to tell that, obviously. But, wow, that would be a gutsy call by the Patriots because they have to put a lot of money into the first year of the contract for the Saints not to match. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and uh, Sean Payton believes in him, but whether that translates to any other team, that remains to be seen. It's a fascinating possibility, though, because of the mobility that he brings to the table and that the Patriots haven't had a guy like that and they've had issues defending guys like that throughout the course of the last 20 years. Before we wrap, and this has been an extended discussion and I appreciate it, it's good that we've had this platform to talk about a lot of the things happening in the NFL. Jameis Winston, clearly available now, he told you in August that he still harbors baseball dreams. And I've been mentioning that, thinking about that all week, because after making $45 million over the first five years of his NFL career, if no one is going to give him a chance to compete to be a starter, if he's going to be a guy who holds a clipboard, does he at least entertain the possibility of the Tim Tebow route? Jump on the bus, get on a single-A team, and try to play baseball. Why not now? If you're ever going to do it, now's the time to do it. And you're walking away from, what, five, six million a year as a backup, something you don't want to do, you want to play. Do you think that this is the time for Jameis Winston to indulge his desire to play baseball? Mike, I think that before I would do that, if I were him, and I think it's an interesting question. I have no idea what his uh, mental fr frame of mind right now is. It wouldn't shock me, though, uh, because before he, uh, I'll never forget this. I talked to him coming out of the combine in 2015, and he told me at the time that he would love to be able in the offseason to spend a couple of months being a closer for somebody and, uh, you know, or, or pitching somewhere. He throws 95. He might be the, the kind of guy with his sort of mental frame of mind. He's not an overly emotional guy. He might be the kind of guy who you could say, you know, uh, we'd, we'd let him be a closer. But I think of that, and then I think of where he is right now, and he probably really wants to show people that the Bucks should have believed in me. Uh, this was year one and, and with Arians, and, and I'm going to be really good. But I think the biggest issue that I have right now, Mike, biggest issue is I would need somebody if I were Jameis Winston, to look at him and say, you know what, I believe in you and I can make you better. And I know that everybody in Pittsburgh has told me, don't be an idiot. They're never going to take Jameis Winston. Ben's the quarterback here for the next couple of years. If I was Mike Tomlin, I would think very seriously about trying to have that conversation just to see if they're, he can now. Why, you know, uh, why can't Mike Tomlin FaceTime right now with Jameis Winston have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with him. Private, nobody ever knows it happens. Why, why can't he do that? Just to see where his head is at. Of course, it'd be better if he could do it face-to-face, -face, but he can't. So why can't he FaceTime right now with Jameis Winston and just talk to him about where he is? Does he still want to be a great quarterback? Would you sit for a year or two if I gave you every chance to be next in Pittsburgh? And I don't disagree with that conceptually, but I'll tell you what, if I'm Jameis Winston, I'm interested in taking over Teddy Bridgewater's spot as number two behind Drew Brees. Look at what it did for Bridgewater. Brees is only there one more yeah. year. Maybe Brees gets injured at some but, point but this season. But if, not if Taysom Hill stays, though. I mean, oh, oh, I don't disagree I don't with that. I don't disagree with it. Yeah. But but they need they need a veteran who can run the standard offense because Hill's going to need his own offense. They need somebody who's ready to play. And I think it would be and, and who knows? Maybe Ben Roethlisberger suffers another season-ending injury in week 2 like last year. I just think Drew Brees is going to be more welcoming to Jameis than Ben Roethlisberger would be. I think Ben's going to be a little more territorial about this, especially as he tries to reestablish himself after last season. I think that yeah. is the, the potential pressure point there. I don't think Ben wants someone that would threaten him implicitly. I think Breeze is fine with it. 
Breeze is getting his money. He's there one more year, and that's that. And Winston, if he gets to play in a couple of games, maybe kind of cleanses the palate and gets somebody to say, all right, you know what? With the right coach, he's not going to have a bunch of interceptions. He's not going to average almost two per game. He can be taught. He can learn. I think, to me, that's his best opportunity if he wants to lay the foundation to be a starter again in the future. Yeah, I guess so, Mike, but uh, I'm not sure that Ben Roethlisberger should have that uh, that power inside the Steelers. He shouldn't. How can you be sure that Ben, Roethlis- ben Roethlisberger is playing 15 games this year? If I gave you an over-under right now, if, if Vegas did an over-under, starts by Ben Roethlisberger this year, what would it be? Eight and a half? Twelve? Right. Yeah. yeah. So you just why don't know. You don't, I think his body could be, get, it could be, it could go ahead. Of course. Why should Ben Roethlisberger be all pissy if they bring in Jameis Winston? Really? Think about it. Yeah. I don't, why should I, he be? Or if they bring in Andy Dalton, if they bring in a guy who's been an established starter, we can't rely on you, Ben. We can't. We want you to be our quarterback. If you're healthy for the next three years, wonderful. Then we have misjudged and overpaid a backup guy and a, and a potential heir. But hey, hey, if we have to do that, great. You know. And 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 I I don't look. I I think you're right. And he had Mike Vick there as a backup at one point. And my God, if he can survive Mike Vick being a backup in Pittsburgh, he can survive Jameis Winston or Andy Dalton. I I just think that. From the standpoint of the overall likelihood of Jameis Winston parlaying this year into starting again next year, I'd be more inclined to go with Sean Payton and fill that spot that Teddy Bridgewater had for the last couple of years because it worked. $21 million per year for Bridgewater after playing six games since the end of the 2015 season. All right, Peter, we have gone for a yeah, long but time, that's not and I appreciate be, it that's very not gonna be, That is not going to be open if Taysom Hill's on the roster anyway. Yeah. They still need a veteran backup, though. They still need a veteran backup because they, you can't have two different offenses. You got to have somebody who can run the Drew Brees yeah. offense. We'll see how it plays out. All right, excellent stuff. Everybody stay safe. Peter, you stay safe. Take care of your spouse. Take care of Chuck and uh, know when to pull the pin and get the hell out of there. Um, and hopefully uh, hopefully that won't come anytime soon. And again, we wish everybody the best. Thanks for joining us all week long. We're back on NBCSN on Monday. Sky Sports on Monday. ProFootballTalk.com all weekend long. And Peter King's free agency football morning in America coming Monday morning. Check that out. Everybody have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday.